Sound design. A mistake that people do is when they leave like a full frequency reverb in a mix and you're like, well, that's a lot of reverb. And it's, you know, it's just because it's all of those frequencies all of the time. Sound design. Sound Design Live is produced by Noah Feldman and Nathan Lively in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome to Sound Design Live, the home of the world's best online training and sound system tuning that you can do at your own pace from anywhere in the world. I'm Nathan Lively, and today I'm joined by producer, engineer, and front of house mixer for such artists as Counting Crows, and is also toured with the Goo Goo Dolls and Avril Lavigne, Sean Teeley. Welcome to Sound Design Live. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Okay, so Sean, I definitely want to talk to you about this topic of finding your sound, tips for mixing live vocals, and sound system calibration. But before I do that, after you get a sound system set up, what's one of your favorite pieces of music to play through it to get more familiar with it? So I have a few different pieces I listen to. Obviously, I have somewhat of a tuning playlist, but there's one specific song that I use pretty consistently that uh, is slightly obscure, a band called Spy Mob. They're out of Minneapolis, and the record came out in the mid-2000s. Tom Lord Algae mixed it, and it has an extensive amount of mid-range information. So when I was mixing shows for Counting Crows, there was a lot of lot of mid-range information. Adam had a lot of... Uh, a lot of mid-range in his vocal. There's three guitar players, keyboards, and so it was a really dense sort of uh, sonic landscape. And so this song uh, is 2040 by Spy Mob. something that I would be able to listen to after we'd, uh, you know, done some tuning on the PA and I could throw that up and make sure that I was hearing all of the stuff that I needed to uh, to pull off a show. So that was kind of a, a song that I would get a lot of questions from a lot of guys that were around or people in the venue be like, hey, what is that song that you played? Because it's, it's a pretty, uh, it's an interesting song. It's pretty catchy, uh, kind of quirky sounding, but um, really kind of defined uh, if a PA could kind of handle what I was about to put at it uh, as far of as far as definition and detail in in a mid-range heavy live music mix. So that's kind of my go-to. There's a couple others. There's a Thomas Dolby song that was uh, from, uh, I think, Aliens Ate My Buick that uh, I picked up from another engineer that, you know, was uh, mastered in the 80s, so it's actually quite quiet, but uh, has a lot of really... Really nice high-end, high-frequency information where I can sort of tell if there's some, you know, the crispness of a, a rig and then some really nice sub information that's not overwhelming, but, you know, you can really hear the definition if it goes all the way down. So, you know, specific specific songs for specific things, and that's kind of something um, I try and share with people, too, is sort of developing a playlist of songs that really kind of, you know, establish what you need to get out of a PA. And listening to those, you can kind of pull out the elements that you're looking for and understand if it's not going to work for you and you need to go back to the drawing board or back to you know smart and your lake and and hack away or add so that's um you know those are a couple couple songs i would dive into other than that i would play the uh the first the intro for those about to rock you and then i would always stop it as the song started which would always make people quite <laughs> angry that i didn't play the whole thing through
you know, it was just a, there's a couple kick drum hits that really kind of reinforce the fact that the PA can rock and, you know, understand that, that it's functioning. And, and it was more of a, it, it was a test procedure for me. It wasn't enjoying the song, even though I do like to listen to that song quite loud on, on large scale PAs. But uh, yeah, so, you know, the, that's kind of, you know, I, I, I didn't get too deep into it. I didn't listen to it all day long. It was pretty quick. I could tell if... You know, if I was getting what I needed from the boxes, and if I wasn't, then it was, you know, into fix mode, and then who knows what things we would uncover at that point. But th those are the kind of the few songs that I would I would really, you know, rely on to get me to where I needed to be with the PA, so. Nice. Sounds like it has those some important milestones in there that quickly, like, you can cue into and, and know some things, know, you know, get some actionable data, like, is this going to work? Where do I need to do some more work? Yeah, and that you know, like the 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 spy mob track has the snare drum on it has this like little bit of a mid range knock, lower mid range thing, and uh, if it was too pronounced, I knew the bo the boxes were going to be a little little bit boxy sounding, and if it was gone, I knew that I was missing some of that low mid information, which I like to introduce into my drums, and so you know, there's all these little things that I could pull out of the songs because I was so familiar with them on so many different systems that it would establish how much fun I would have later in the day. So. Very cool. Minneapolis natives. All right. So Sean, as I was preparing for this interview, uh, I was looking through your Instagram feed, which is pretty fun. Lots of cool pictures in there of gear and shows and stuff. Also of you going to restaurants and what to me look like breweries or potentially bars. And so I saw this photo that, that looks like a bunch of beers. And so I was going to ask you, what's your favorite beer? Well, I don't drink, uh, but I think the photo you're <laughs> referencing is uh, uh, there's a shop down in Huntington, Indiana. I moved to Indiana a few years ago to, to work at Sweetwater, and uh, in Huntington, Indiana, there is a soda shop called Anticology, and they have 700 flavors of soda. And oh so it's like, a, it's like a vintage ice cream and soda shop. So cool. I haven't been there much, but it was an impressive wall. And uh, yeah, I, uh, I tend to, uh, to gravitate more towards soda than beer, but uh, that was uh, an interesting spot. There's a, you know, I I mean, moving to Indiana, kind of getting used to the Midwest, there's a lot of a lot of interesting stuff. I know there is a lot of breweries around here, and, you know, there's a lot of good food. I mean, Fort Wayne's kind of exploding. We're, we're growing as a city, so there's a lot of really cool restaurants that are popping up and stuff. So, yeah, I do enjoy that. I enjoy cooking, and I enjoy eating. So, yeah, no, that's uh, that's one of my favorite pastimes. I mean, that's something I miss from, uh, from my touring days is being able to get out and get around and try different restaurants and stuff like that. So... Tell me about either a couple of things that you tried at this 700 soda shop store or, or, or one of your favorite sodas. I'm just curious, like what, is, what are your tastes? Yeah, a big fan of Black Cherry. I actually had a friend that drove down to Kentucky. or No, he went up to Michigan and uh, went to some sort of cherry orchard and brought back six or eight different kinds of cherry-flavored soda, ginger ale, ginger oh beer, root beer, <laughs> all that stuff. So uh, I got some treats from my friend uh, Lynn Fuston, who's uh, uh, someone I work with here, which is uh, uh, Lynn and I work on a lot of very cool marketing projects. He is the manager of written content here, but if no one's familiar with Lynn Fuston, they should be. Uh, he's a total geek, and uh, we do a lot of shootouts together and so he he travels a lot on the weekend so he brought back a bunch of super cool flavored sodas which we got to try this week but we're also in the middle of doing a 34 mic snare drum shootout at the moment where we're Whoa. shooting out 34 different mics so in studio a right now we have a pretty interesting photo shoot going on with a lot of microphones around one drum so but we do a lot of cool stuff like that if you get a chance google lynn he did a lot of engineering in nashville for years and he ended up here and we do a lot of really cool content that makes it on on Sweetwater's website. So, are you familiar with the Audio Test Kitchen? 
Uh, yes, I am. Okay, cool. I interviewed Alex Oana a while back, and his project was so interesting seeing how they did all of the recording. So are you guys having a... I'm assuming you're having a human actually hit the snare drum in this case. So, yeah, I think that Lynn's ultimate goal in life is to find someone to develop the robot drummer that actually can hit a drum consistently. But, uh, yeah, we have our in-house uh, session musician and content creator, Nick DiVirgilio, hitting our drums for us. And so we, we try and keep... We've done this on a lot of different things. We've done speaker cabinets, ribbon mics, vocal mics, uh, comparisons to virtual mics, a lot of different things. And we try and keep the control factors to a minimum so everything is really consistent. We like to use lasers, you know, take precise measurements, you know, calibrate things. So we try and take into account the most amount of or, or eliminate the most amount of variables from any of these processes. And so we had, I think we had 19 mics around the snare for the dynamic microphones and we had 12 condensers. And so individually, we lined them all, tried to get them where they're phase aligned the best we could in actual placement around the drum. In the same distance and the same height from the head. And then we captured one pass of the recording of the drum. So the variable of the performance is not taken into account, but the placement is the variable that we had to kind of give into. So, sure. but it should be cool. I think it'll give people a good, a good understanding of what different microphones sound like on the same drum. So that's something that's going to come out in the next month or so when uh, Sweetwater's Drum Month comes out. There's going to be some cool content with that. So, oh, cool. Yeah. Well, um, I would love to to see what my own tastes are and do like a blind, like an A-B test. And I'd also love to hear what, what you would end up picking if you listened to a bunch of them and not knowing what they were and just pick the one that you thought sounded the best for that specific situation. Yeah, and, and I think I want to do that too. You know, I gravitate towards things that I know and things that I trust and, and from, re, you know, repeated use and, and success. But, you know, that's one of those things where you can sit back and listen. And it's been funny, you know, the few times that I have blind taste-tested microphones, I usually end up picking the ones that I go to. So I feel like I'm usually using my ears and not my eyeballs for listening, which I think is a good thing. But yeah, the, the snare drum thing, I think it'll be pretty cool. But there's some mics I would never even think to put on the drum or just haven't had a chance to in a long time. So it also gives a, a, you know an opportunity to refresh my memory of things I like or haven't used in a while. And so or finding new things that I, you know, would be a, a different flavor than than what I'd go to consistently because I've been known to be, you know, fairly set in my ways about certain (laughs) things, but I'm trying to have a more open mind about gear these days. So, so Sean, you worked with the Counting Crows. It seems like, uh, at least for me and a lot of people who love the Counting Crows, in my imagination, of, of course, never having experience working with them as humans, but just in my imagination, it seems like a dream gig. So I would love to just talk about sort of how you get work. So in this specific case, how did you get the gig? Like what sort of relationships and series of events led you to work for the Counting Crows? So I I feel like I'm going to tell a pretty unique story about that. I started with the Counting Crows as their drum and keyboard technician after I had toured with them for a summer working with the Goo Goo Dolls as drum and playback technician for them. Uh, I really hit it off with a drummer. He loved the way I tuned the drums. Side note, I started as a drummer as a teenager and uh, spent a lot of time playing and then a lot of time tuning drums. So I'm very much a nerd about all of that stuff. But So I started with Counting Crows, I think in 2008, as their drum keyboard tech. Then that developed into uh, recording their shows, archiving them for them. 
And a couple years into that, I had stepped back over to the Goo Goo Dolls and was guitar teching for them for a tour. And I got a phone call from the guitar player from the Counting Crows, Dave Bryson, who reached out and said, hey, we're going to go to the studio. Uh, would you like to come record us? And I was like, well, that seems like a great idea. So sure. I jumped on that and, you know, I had a pre-established relationship with the band. I got along with everyone really well. And uh, we got into the studio and it went really well. And I had a really good handle on... I think what the band sounded like and, and what I felt they should sound like. And I think we gelled on that in the studio. So they really kind of trusted what I had brought to the table as far as Sonics in the studio. So that translated into an offer to mix the band live. And so just as a, a quick backstory, I had dabbled in live sound my entire career, but I'd never had a large format gig mixing a band. I had always worked as a backline technician because those were the gigs I was getting. And then when I was at home, I was mixing live sound at clubs and bars. And when I was on the road, I was mixing opening acts. And so I was getting a lot of experience. And I was always, you know, the annoying guy at front of house asking the engineers like, hey, what's that do? Hey, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, I was always lurking in the audio department, even though that wasn't my job. So picked up a lot of that stuff along the way. So when I got the opportunity to mix the County Crows, obviously I jumped at that because that was sort of where I was, where I was aiming to be, but, you know, I hadn't had the opportunity to get there. So I had put the, the groundwork in to get a gig like that, but I just hadn't been working in the, the field of, as a touring front of house engineer. So I went from co-producing a record with them to mixing front of house after being a backline technician. So I feel like that's a slightly strange trajectory for uh, anybody in the touring world. Usually you sort of start somewhere and, and, and work your way up. So I, I landed what I, th I feel like was one of my, you know, it was a dream gig to have in sort of an obscure way, but at the same time built on, on, on trust and, and engagement with the band and and being able to communicate with them and get them what they were looking for so what's interesting for me uh, or an interesting point about this story is that you didn't start out in your life saying i want to be front of house mixer for counting crows you were just working on shows and you were a drummer and then you, I, I guess at some point there was an opportunity for you to become drum tech and so it sounds like you were just sort of open to learning all things and then you know as you were around and you built relationships like sort of opportunities came up it doesn't sound like to me that you were sort of lobbying it for any particular position you weren't calling that guitar player every day and saying hey when are you going to give me that front of house mixing gig <laughs> or the, when are you going to give me that recording gig and then he finally called you yeah, and and I think that you know, it, with a you know positive attitude, I, I you know I work hard, I, I try and stay engaged with people, and I think that you know being around and and obviously having a good attitude towards things is really beneficial to that. But I you know I jumped on the opportunities that were presented with me. I straight out of high school, I, I hit the road. I had a bit of a helping hand from my father, who owned a road case company. And so I had already been established working in the industry, got a job at about, about the age of 16 doing backline and stuff at a local backline company. And so I had already started engaging with people. You know, I met a front of house engineer who took me on my first tour uh, when I was 18. And, and so even with him, uh, he kind of took me under his wing and showed me some stuff. And I started mixing some of the opening acts on, on that first tour even. So I was always, you know, very interested in that. I mean, I established that I could build a career on being a backline technician and that, you know, 
the paychecks would come if I would do that. And it gave me the opportunity to really learn a lot and engage with a lot of people. One of the, my second tour was with Avril Lavigne and I was working with her as a drum technician. I was taking care of the playback rig on that tour. And, you know, I, I met one of my, my mentors on that tour, who uh, was Jim Yakabuski, who's a world famous sound engineer, also another Canadian. And uh, he, uh, he was really helpful, and I was really able to to get a lot from him. And funny how it worked out is it, it went full circle on my last tour with Counting Crows. He was mixing Matchbox 20, and so we were able to mix side by side and uh, have a fun tour out on the road. And so, but like those opportunities that I got myself into, I tried to take advantage of and tried to get, you know, get as much information and get as much knowledge from the people I was working with. Because there was a lot of really talented people I crossed paths with. And that was something that I kind of realized early on. It's like, these people know everything that I want to know. And I, if I'm nice enough to them or ask them enough questions, I'm sure they'll share some of this knowledge. And so I was able to, you know, extract enough stuff out of that, you know, to, to kind of put a skill set together for myself. Wow, that's great. And that's like a whole lifetime of learning. I just wonder if I look at this, is there anything I could take away from this for my own career? So if you were my mentor and we had a mentor-mentee relationship and I was asking you, Sean, I want to get to a place where I can be mixing some of my favorite artists and doing these kinds of tours. Is there any sort of anything I could be doing in, in order of like taking action? Like, is there anything that I can do or am I just kind of waiting for the phone to ring and hope that those opportunities come up for me? Play with sound every day. I don't know. That That's something like I, I feel like I don't ever stop trying to improve my skill set and try to learn. That's something that I see, you know, if there's someone that's like waiting around for a gig, I don't think those things happen very quickly if you're waiting on something. If you're pushing yourself to improve your skill set, to expand your horizons, to learn new things, to get engaged, I mean, the only way that you're going to have a good handle on mixing a show in a bunch of different venues is if you've mixed a bunch of shows in a bunch of different venues. So, I mean, that that I, I have to say, to me, one of the most important things is to get yourself into a position where you get an opportunity to do some of the work you like to do as many times as possible in as many different situations as you possibly can. Because once you get into, I would say, the bigger leagues, when you get a you know upside-down situation and you're kind of painted yourself into the corner, you need to have the skills to get out of that and still put on a good show. So, I mean, the experience is really what I think establishes people uh, that are successful because they know how to deal with all of the problems or at least have you know, a skill set to adapt and overcome, which is something I think is is necessary in our industry. So making mistakes and and having the skill set to adapt and overcome. Speaking of that, what do you think are some of the biggest mistakes you see people making who are new to front of house mixing? So you've been around, you've been starting out and and then you've been mixing the headliner and seeing other people come up who are just getting started and now you are even in, in a position where you're doing even more education. So could you Talk about maybe one or two of the most common mistakes you see people making who are who are getting started. Yeah, probably kind of a twofold answer on that. I feel like there's there's some of the skill set uh, needed to be an audio engineer that's based in in science, and some of it's based in art. And I think that the blend of the two of those is really the key to success. I feel like a lot of people look at audio a lot. I think they rely on real-time analyzers and, and you know, measurement data, which is obviously 
that's going to tell you what's going on and, you know, trust the information as long as you know how to measure things properly. But, you know, I've seen people mix a show while they're watching smart and it's like, this is not, this is not working, you know? And so I think that there's a reliance on the science side of thing. And then the other side of it is like, you need to have an understanding of what music should sound like. You know, I, I really had an uphill battle with the Counting Crows where we had seven guys on stage, seven people singing, and everybody was playing a bunch of different instruments. And I think that my goal whenever there was a song being played was that I could look on the stage and I could hear everything that was being played. And I think that that's something that, that one of my biggest pet peeves is if I'm watching a show and I see someone play something and I can't hear it, it's like, <laughs> yeah. where, where is that? Like, why is it not in the mix? Yep. What is going on? You know, and that that's something that, that takes that art of understanding, you know, how the music should be represented and then also knowing all the parts. Like, are you missing cues that you have? Are you not unmuting instruments? Things like that. So... You know, that that kind of is something that I think is is a mistake people make when they're like still worried about the drum sound and it's like nobody cares about how the drums sound right now if the lead vocalist isn't over the mix or if there's like a, you know, a lead guitar part or some sort of, you know, something going on that's interesting that's integral to the song and you can't hear it. You know, the fans are used to the record. They need to have those sort of elements in the mix so that they can enjoy the show. So I think that those are kind of, you know, a couple of things that I that I see that bother me when I hear people mixing where I'm not like not getting engaged by everything that's going on. I'm like, man, I wish I could hear what he's playing because I can't hear that right now. Yeah. And then also the reliance on, you know, visual stimulation instead of using your ears and, and kind of making that, you know, judgment call of like, okay, yeah, it looks bad, but it sounds good. So we're going to move on. And that, that's something that I've seen, you know, people do in the past. And that's, uh, for me to enjoy a show, that's something that really, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's kind of a bummer because with ha having high standards like that, it's hard to go to a show that's not mixed well and enjoy it. So totally. Okay. So we're going to talk more about, you mentioned vocals. We're going to talk more about that in a second. First, and let's just talk about finding your sound. And you mentioned just enjoying the show, looking at the stage, things sort of make sense as they're happening on the stage in the audio. So you wrote this article called Finding Your Sound in the Studio. And I wanted to see if maybe we could use the same topic, but for talking about live production. So I want to read this quote from the beginning of the article that says, walking into the studio isn't the right time to decide what your record is going to sound like. I know the feeling of being a kid in a candy store is enticing, but this is the time where having a clear idea of what you want your recording to sound like is really key. And in another interview, I've heard you talking about being in positions where you get to spec the sound system. And so I'm, when you get to that position where you can say, oh, these are the microphones that I want. This is the mixing console that I want. This, these, this is the sound system that I want. That is kind of the similar thing as a recording studio of being a kid in a candy store, right? You could pick all these things. So you might just say, oh, I want, uh, I don't know, all the most expensive microphones and all the most expensive speakers. I don't know. I'm just like, you go into a restaurant and you're like, bring me the most expensive wine. I don't know. So I wondered if you could talk about how that conversation might go when you are first getting into a live production was there a time, for example, with some of the artists that you've worked with where you said to them, or, or how did you figure out, like, what is the sound quality that's going to make them happy and make the show successful and make the audience happy? And how does that influence my decision-making process? So how does that kind of conversation go? So I feel I'm a 
pretty big proponent of getting the sound right at the source. And to me, that's something that has to be a conversation with the musician involved. And that's something that I established with the Counting Crows early on when I was working in the studio with them. We worked on guitar tones. We worked on sounds, drum sounds. I was already working with the drummer, and he was really happy with the way I was making the drum sound. And so all of these components that I was working on with the band were building blocks for a great-sounding show. So we were working through you know, different guitar amps to achieve different guitar tones. You know, we, we got to different bass DIs that we found one we really liked, and we ended up getting some for the, the touring rig. And so I was able to work hand-in-hand hand with the band. They had my trust to give my input on some of the, the band's equipment that would establish the way things sounded so that then my job from that point on, from the microphone out, was, you know, it made my life easier, but then also those tonal choices early on allowed me the flexibility to add, you know, microphones that I could, you know, get the best and get what I was looking for out of it. So there's a lot of things that I did in the live realm that I think some people would shy away from. I used a lot of studio microphones. I used a lot of ribbons. I used a lot of vintage microphones. But I was capturing sources that I was familiar with and sounded really great, so I was using that to my advantage so I could then take it up another level by using a microphone that I liked, and that tone imparted on that instrument would translate to my mix. And so I think if you have the opportunity to work with an artist who trusts you, getting the right sound, you know, getting guitar tones and drums that work for whatever style of music or whatever artist you're working with is going to establish you know, everything else down the line to be more effectively mixed. And then, yeah, I was a kid in the candy store, and I did have tons of gear, and I toured with a bunch of outboard stuff. And, you know, all of it was kind of based on things that I like to use, you know, a lot of experience with some of the more esoteric outboard gear in the studio. But all of that stuff, I felt, helped translate my vision of the show to the audience. So I was trying to get an album quality mix in a live setting as best as I possibly could. The flip side of that too is that all of the shows I mixed for the Counting Crows got released. So livecountingcrows.com has all of my mixes that go out to the world and get sold. So I was, you know, kind of trying to bring as much to the table as I could from a sonic standpoint, but then establishing what I was working with and making sure that that was helping me get the results I look, was looking for. Now, the flip side of that, being here at Sweetwater for the past three years, I was head of audio at the Clyde Theater, which is a venue that we own in town, and I got a chance to mix everything under the sun for a few years, which is a lot different than having the ability to start from scratch or, you know, choose from a library of vintage guitar amplifiers and, you know, make sure the drummer's using cymbals that aren't too loud. It really kind of gave me the opportunity to learn how to deal with anything that got thrown at me. And so the best way to fix a problem, though, still to this day is at the source. If the bass amp's too loud, the bass amp's too loud. Like, go up to the bass player and say, hey, if you'd like your show to sound a bit better, I'd love it if you could help me out here and turn down your bass amp. And that's something that I think, you know, is always going to help you. If you can establish a relationship with the artist or at least get their trust, even if it's a short-term relationship, even if they're an opening act, if you can do what you can to help them sound better on stage, then you can mix a better show for them and, you know, hopefully they can get some more fans and keep coming back and they, you know, if they trust you and you've given them your best effort, hopefully that, you know, relates into a relationship that can be maybe long-term, maybe not. So especially when you're working in a venue and being able to engage with touring artists and sort of, you know, 
make friends, give them a good experience and, you know, show that you care. I think that really, really helps out in that final product being better. So, And do you think that comes through with the artists? Do they hear you say that and they think, oh, Sean's here every night. He's been here for three years. He knows as much as anyone about this room. So I should listen to him because I want to have a great show tonight. Or they think, oh no, this guy's going to try to make me turn down. I need to, I need to fight him off somehow because I'm worried about, you know, my own performance. Does that, how does that usually play out? Well, I mean, there's preconceived notions of, of the sound man being the angry sound man coming in and kind of pushing people around. And, you know, I, I try and I try and establish that I'm here to help, you know, and that's something that I think uh, when you deal with professionals, I think that you can hopefully as a musician let your guard down a bit. But I feel like there's a lot of musicians that have their guard up because they've had bad experiences in the past or people trying to control them, not maybe for making the show better, but just making their life's you know, quote unquote, less miserable. So, you know, it's, (laughs) yeah. you know, and and I think that that really kind of establishes, like, if you're like, hey, I'm on your team, like, if you guys sound good, that makes me look good, you know, vice versa. So all of this stuff hopefully works in like a symbiotic relationship with the artists where, you know, if, if I give them my good effort, they'll give me their good effort and we put on a good show. And then hopefully the fans enjoy it and then they can come back and play more shows and, and have a larger fan base. And I think that that, you know, on a, on a smaller scale, when you're not working with a headliner, you know, putting in the effort that you would if it was a headliner. Like I had a, a mixed template that had like all of my bells and whistles, even if I had, you know, three inputs. I had everything ready at my fingertips on my console. So I could give them, you know, if we got into something that was like a large scale thing, I had all the stuff there. If it was an acoustic guitar and a vocal, I still had some effects and things I could do. So I had all my, you know, I had my palette at my fingertips. And like, you know, I was working on an Avid S6L, which is, you know, not a common house desk. Like we were pretty, you know, it was pretty spoiled with that. But at the same time, you know, mixing on an X32 or an M32, you have the ability to get a, something going for, you know, any of the artists where you can give them a little bit more than the bare minimum. And I think that that, you know, hopefully translates. If you show that you care, hopefully they you know, they appreciate that. And and in the end, hopefully the, the audience appreciates that. Okay, Sean. So you made this great video for Sweetwater called Tips for Mixing Live vocals. And you and I have known each other for a long time now, I think about 38 minutes. And so I hope you don't mind. (laughs) So I hope you don't mind if we potentially disagree a little bit, because one of the things that you say in this video is that a loud stage would be a more appropriate choice for a dynamic microphone. And this kind of caught my ear when I was listening to it, because I interviewed Philip Graham from Ear Trumpet Labs, who make some really cool looking condenser microphones a few years ago. And I basically told him all of my ideas about why dynamic microphones were better for live events and concert stages. And he disagreed with me on all of those things. And so I wondered if you wouldn't mind just sort of defending your statement here about dynamic microphones. Yeah, happy to do that. The... Yeah, I I feel that dynamic microphones are the go-to choice for a live situation. Now, I mean, there's situations where a condenser microphone may be appropriate. I would say 99% of the shows I've mixed in the past 10 years have been on dynamic microphones. Uh, There is one specific occasion that I mixed a show with a condenser microphone, and it was spectacular. It was a singer and an acoustic piano on a stage, and it allowed for me to have a microphone with a more sensitive pickup on that stage because there was no real noise floor. It was a piano and vocal, and 
I wasn't mixing loud and it, everything kind of fell into place with that. But dynamic microphones, I mean, if you have wedges on stage, which uh, some people still do that, but especially if you're dealing with, you know, local artists or, you know, opening acts on tours in a house sound person environment, condenser microphone in front of a wedge is a completely unstable situation to uh, to try and manage, especially if someone has bad mic technique. So, yeah, I would uh, probably take it to my grave that I would put a dynamic microphone in front of a vocalist on a stage almost any day of the week. A huge fan of the Telefunken uh, microphones. The M80 and the M81 are extremely amazing microphones, and I've used those for years and had amazing success. Things, you know, that come into play with that is that those microphones have an extremely tight polar pattern, so the pickup is, is very directional so we don't get a lot of bleed on the deck. So that's something that I fought for years, especially the Counting Crows having a bunch of guitar amps, seven people playing drums and, and all that stuff going on. We had a couple of people still on wedges, and so there was a lot of noise going on. So, you know, finding a microphone that was, you know, pretty much the cleanest sounding thing where I could get the most amount of direct signal without a lot of, you know, interference and bleed, those microphones really kind of made my job easier. But... You know, you get into situations where you have artists that maybe may be using in-ears and have, you know, a strange in-ear mix that if you're using a dynamic microphone compared to a condenser microphone, the ambience in a venue really changes. I mean, it's pretty surprising if someone has a really loud vocal in isolated in-ears, they pick up a lot of ambience of the venue, even on, you know, even on a dynamic microphone. So if you get into the realm of having something that's even more sensitive that picks up some of the, you know, the the cavernous sounds of an arena, that can put your artist in an unfamiliar place and, and the performance may suffer. So to me that, I mean, I don't know, I would, uh, it would be hard pressed to find a, a solution with a condenser microphone that would make sense for me in a live situation. And even, you know, yeah, I, I really... I can't. I can't think of one that that makes, make would make me happy in an audio world. So, I think I'm going to hold my ground on that one. Sean, you're making me realize that um, to pick a microphone. Just talking about vocals. I guess you can't really just audition those in a studio environment. You would really have to try them on a show because there's so many different factors that are going on on a live stage. So I guess you just really have to, to try it on a show and see if it works. Is that kind of how you've picked vocal microphones over the years? Like you tried something new and you did a whole show and you're like, you know what, for many different reasons, this really works. Or for many different reasons, this really doesn't work in this situation. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I went through a few different microphone changes with the Counting Crows. We landed on on the Telefunken stuff, but we had an opportunity to do it and, and it had to be something that both ends of the snake agreed on. Me and the monitor guy had to sort of be like, okay, we're going to try this today. He would have to get it dialed in and he would have to be happy with it being something that he could work with. So that was as important as it was for me to have a good sound out front. And so there was times where we disagreed. I mean, sometimes it's hard to to pry a 58 out of someone's hands uh, and give them something else just because of familiarity and especially for, you know, an engineer that's been worth a band for a long time, changing things like that. That's sort of like you don't want to take the blankie away from from the singer or something like that. So I think it's like you have to establish that there's a reason to change. You have an opportunity to try something in a somewhat controlled environment. You have to know that the venue's not terrible. I mean, we've done it. I've done it in the past. We're like, hey, let's try this. We try it. It just sounds super weird. And it's like today's not the day to, to do the change and you know also the the psychology of dealing with a musician like if a singer rolls in and he's like totally out 
and not part of like engaging with a sound check or just not, you know, not giving his all. If you're switching microphones on him and he gets into a show situation and he's like, what is this thing? And why does it sound so weird? You don't want to be the one that gets blamed for that. So right. I think that like establishing, okay. you know, those changes has to be someone, something that's like sort of a team effort, but has to be justified. And like, you have an end goal of, of, you know, success in it sounding better or working better for whatever you need. And, and I think that like, that being said, a lot of stuff that I would do in in tuning a PA and even uh, implementing PA design on a tour situation would be to keep the center vocal position as clean as possible on stage. And so there's a lot of work that we did to kind of keep the stage, you know, as quiet as possible with the least amount of ambience, the least amount of low end rumble and stuff like that. So that would establish sort of a consistent space for the singer to work in too. So, and then the microphone reacts more efficiently with less interference of all of those other factors. So, you know, it's a weighted question, but that, sure. you know, there, there's a lot of different variables that go into that. Sean, how do I set the high pass filter on a vocal? As high as it'll go until it sounds bad. <laughs> yeah, I know. I when, mean, did it, it, what, what, when does it sound bad? Is it is it? There's a characteristic it, in the yeah, low yeah, end when, that's like yeah, you're missing well, it. I, yeah, and and I think that I would probably go higher than lower on a on a high pass, just you know, to kind of keep that clarity. I mean, it's easier to get a thinner vocal above a mix, anyways. But like, one fifty is somewhere that I would I would hover around, you know, between one twenty and one fifty. And then if I needed to go, it depended on you know things that like if I was pushing the gain on something, I would tighten it up. I mean, I'm not scared of using the high pass filter or lots of EQ. There was a point in time where I was actually using a channel of a lake processor to. EQ my vocal. So I was getting like surgical into like, you know, slicing things out and cleaning it up so that I could get the most amount of gain before feedback. And so, you know, it, it really depends on what you needed to do, what the vocalist sounds like. And that's sort of the thing if someone's like got a really low voice and you high pass too much of it, you lose all the character. But, you know, it's that, that balance of what works for the singer and then what works for your mix too. I mean, what you want to do is hopefully have people hear the vocal. I've been told to, you know, turn the vocal down or bury it before if someone's not super competent. But for the most part, I think that people want to hear the voice and mm -hmm. then, you know, you need to be able to get it up there. And so, yeah, I pretty much get it till it, it starts sounding thin and then I roll it back just a little bit just so it has okay. some body. But that, you know, in in a live situation, you don't want, I mean, you wouldn't be adding like 100 hertz to the vocal, like any of that sort of stuff that like gives you some like girth that would be in a studio recording just doesn't need to exist, I think, in, in most of the live situations. But I mean, obviously that's style, stylistically dependent. Mm -hmm. And room and system dependent. I mean, if there's a bunch of wedges on stage and side fills and they're standing near the sound system, then you have loads more low frequency buildup than if yeah, you know, the stage is super quiet. The monitor guys really hate when you go to the console and then roll their high pass up too. But uh, <laughs> but I mean that 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 is something that happens when you got a bunch of big wedges on a deck when vocals on stage aren't high pass enough. Which is you know sometimes the monitor engineers that are trying to get a lot of level try and get that like chesty feeling out of that. But the 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 blow like the blowback from that 
to front of house is sometimes pretty gross. And that actually affects, you know, some phase relationship with the microphone and with low frequency stuff that's coming out of off of wedges. So that's always something too, that if you can, you know, stay friends with your monitor engineer and, you know, hopefully work together and be like, Hey man, like that's like really boomy out here or like really thumpy and, and that's going to compete with the mix too. So I think that that's something that like, you know, as much as you high pass a vocal, if it's still like super, you know, super chesty or super thumpy, on stage and there's wedges up there that's gonna that's gonna fight you all night long so okay. um i think that that's something to be aware of but uh yeah i'm not scared of getting rid of that stuff and i mean that that kind of goes for everything it's the high pass filter is your friend when you're mixing so sean how do i set the pre-delay on a vocal reverb well uh i like to keep it fairly tight i'm not a big fan of really upfront effects. I like to kind of make them sound like I'm creating space around a vocal, but I don't like to hear reverb. I'm not a fan of, you know, long sort of, you know, lexicon sounding things that are very apparent. So I end up using a few different reverbs sometimes or like some short delays. I like to keep my pre-delay on a reverb usually under 20 milliseconds. Anything longer than that sort of like gets it too far out from the rest of the vocal. And really what I'm trying to do is I'm kind of creating a soundstage with my vocal effects. I'm not creating like a, a really prominent effect, but just like giving it a place for the vocal to sit in the mix. And that's something that I've I've kind of been doing for a long time. I just, um, I don't know, either scared of like really loud effects or I just, I think tastefully don't like them. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing wrong with that, but like I like to make it so that it sounds natural so that I'm literally just like kind of pushing away some stuff so the vocal can sit in the middle of the, the, uh, the either the reverb or like some short delays. So yeah, that sounds that, great. It sounds like you're really balancing on there between the two sides of making an artistic choice, which would be to have some big effect that's really visible, uh, really audible. And then over here where you're doing sound reinforcement, which is what needs to happen here with this effect to help this mix work. Yeah. And I mean, I take that into the studio work I do as well. Like I don't, you know, I'm always hesitant to go overboard with effects. I'm not a big delay throw kind of guy. And that, you know, obviously with the Counting Crows, there's not a lot of like affected vocal. It's pretty prominently trying to hear what he, what Adam is singing or saying and, and, and bringing the, the lyrical content out. So I'm not trying to make it sound, you know, artistically affected. It's trying to, you know, represent what's going on. And I think, you know, intelligibility in, in a in any kind of, you know, situation where the lyrics are important is a really important thing, which goes back to the high pass filter and, and having the intelligibility of a vocal be there in the mix, I think really is important. Just so people, you know, that are there as fans can understand what the singer's saying. I, you know, that I don't think there's anything worse than like showing up and being like, what did he just say? Like, how, I can't hear it. Like, he's not singing, you know. So those things, when you're not overly affecting the voice, not pushing it too far into the mix, and then also, you know, keeping it clean with, with effective EQ, that allows for the, you know, the clarity and intelligibility of a vocal. So, so let's, let's talk about clarity, intelligibility, and the reverb return. Um, so, in that video about tips for mixing live vocals, you also mention that it's important to EQ the reverb return so that it sits well in the mix. So can you tell me more about how to do that? Yeah, I, I think that um, my approach to EQing a reverb return or any effects return is... Um, there's a certain amount, depending on your preset that you pulled up, I would say, like, I'm not quite digital artifacts, but, like, 
non-realistic sounding space that comes back from a reverb a lot of the times. And what I try to do is usually carve out some of like the the harsher, you know, higher mid frequencies. I take off some of the top end. I high pass some of the the low frequencies in order to to fit that space into what I'm doing. And I think that that is another piece of the puzzle where it allows me to create the space around the voice is that I'm tailoring that to support the vocal rather than just be like, hey, there's the reverb. All of it's there, you know, usually take off anything that picks up S's where you hear the S in the reverb. So sometimes I'll even DS a reverb before or put a DSer in front of a reverb plugin to take off some of the S's on the vocal. If I'm keeping them in the actual vocal sound, then at least it's not hitting the effect as hard. And then when it comes back, you know, just taming some of that, that high frequency information, there's, you know, there's a lot of that that just doesn't need to be there. And I think that that's a mistake that people do is when they leave like a full frequency reverb in a mix and you're like, well, that's a lot of reverb. And it's, you know, it's just because it's all of those frequencies all of the time. When you tailor that to the sound you're looking for, I think it gives you a more natural sounding reverb. So that's usually my approach to that. And same thing with, you know, if you have like a, a delay, a filtered effect on that where you high pass, low pass and find a spot where it kind of accentuates that voice and kind of makes it something that can sort of be a little bit ghosty in the mix is a little bit more tasteful than having like a blasting, you know, delay that, that is, is full frequency range. Okay, let's talk about the Clyde Theater. So I've never been there. I just looked at some photos online. Let's just start with some of your favorite things. So what's one of your favorite things about working at the Clyde Theater? And maybe what's one of the most challenging things about working there? Well, my favorite part about the whole Clyde project was the fact that I was involved early on before the theater even opened up. So myself, along with uh, stage manager and the monitor engineer that we worked with there, Drew Consalvo, we uh, worked together to adapt and sort of deal with any problems that we foresaw before we even opened. So uh, we weren't part of the design process, but then when we got in there to do the final install and to commission the system and, and get everything going, we um, modified a few things in order to make it so that people on the road rolled in there and were super happy with, with everything that was there. We made things accessible. We made things flexible. It was clean. There was all of the, you know, cables, adapters. Everything was ready to go. Everything was dialed in. And that, that was really kind of a nice thing. And we got a lot of feedback from a a lot of different artists that rolled through like this is one of the the most awesome venues we've been at oh, cool be because we we're in the midwest we're stuck between a lot of people coming from you know different like established venues that may not be the most fun places to do shows and so we really kind of you know made people have a great day at the office and that that's something that i think I, we we're both really proud of, of of having a venue where people could show up and just have an easy day, you know, it was like a ramp load in our truck dock that was 20 feet from the stage, you know, there was no stairs, there was no, no stupid things to make your day miserable, it was like we had everything we needed and it was accessible and there was, you know, a, a nice facility, it sounded really good, we had, you know, all of the things that just make a day on the road easier for someone that's been, you know, out for, who knows, six weeks or whatever when they roll in and you can kind of give them a bit of a rest because everything's covered. And that's something that, you know, we, we kind of strived for and that, that made 
I don't know. It made it great for doing shows. It, it was a, an awesome experience with pretty much everyone that walked in. And yeah, I don't think there's really anything that I didn't like about that. I mean, it was a learning experience, you know, dealing with being a house guy for a change. I had a lot of great experiences mixing a bunch of random bands that I, you know, never really would have got a chance to mix and, and, you know, having fun with that. So yeah, it was, uh, it, it's a, it's a great venue. Hopefully uh, you'll get to see it at some point. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, I just want to say thank you. And I have so much gratitude for people who care about this stuff because I have been on tours where we've showed up at tiny places where, you know, we're figuring out how to turn the electricity on and we're carrying cases up tiny stairwells and giant places where you are pushing things up and down giant ramps and there's not enough forklifts and all these problems. And then you when you show up at a place that's just easy to work at and has like, seems like is designed with these kinds, this kind of work in mind, like, Oh God, it's just like <laughs> tears start to come to your eyes. <laughs> but, and, and you know, I, and, but w- between Drew, Drew and myself, we'd been to every venue on earth that sucked. We've been to all the good ones. And so we were able to bring that experience. And like, I, I, I was advancing some shows with some people. I was like, yeah, no, we got you. And like, I could tell they didn't believe me when I said, yeah, no, we got you. Like we're in Fort Wayne. It's like a, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to believe, but it's like when you tell someone that, yeah, this is a great venue, it'll be an easy day. And they're like, uh, are you sure about that? And I'm like, yeah, no, it's, it's great. And so, you know, it's nice to be able to, to do that because, you know, I know how that it wears on you when you're on the road and you're back to back and miserable venues and up the stairs and you can't fit things and you know there's oh there's an elevator but it doesn't fit any of our cases and like all these sort of things that just you know pile up so when you can roll into a venue or you know there's hot water and clean showers and good food and you know a nice PA and you know clean backstage and lots of storage all of those things I don't know it's just a reprise from like you know slugging it out and, and I feel like there's more venues and I hope through the pandemic that my understanding is a lot of venues put a little bit more effort into doing some upgrades and, and getting some stuff together. So hopefully when touring is fully fired back up, which is looking sooner than later, that there's more awesome venues on the circuit. And I think that it's, you know, I think in the end, the fans appreciate a band and a crew that's happy because they hopefully put on a better show when everyone's in a good mood as best they can be. So, Okay, Sean, you mentioned the final install. You mentioned having everything dialed in and you mentioned making people happy. So let's talk about that. Um, Recently, a friend of mine installed and calibrated a sound system in a small church, and I actually came up to observe a little bit and and do some tests of my own. So I happened to be there, and I, I could see the whole thing go down. And when I asked him about it later, it turned out that the client was unhappy with his work. Now, the client wasn't there while I was there. My friend just did all their work and then left. Um, and then later on, the client listened to it. And so he just heard through secondhand that they had asked for it to be improved. So the company sent up another tech. And my understanding is that that tech basically reset everything just back kind of to the manufacturer defaults. And, and the client was happy with that. So I don't think there's really a right and wrong here. But I do wonder if there's some way that I could potentially end up on the side of the client liking it more often than not. So is there some way for me to get inside of their head to kind of predict the characteristics of what is good sound to someone and then try to produce a result that they're happy with? Or is the only way to really guarantee that to just sit with the client in the room and basically audition changes until they're happy? Well, I don't know that with sound being so subjective, 
I feel like it's a, it is a personal decision. Now people can like things that sound bad to me and think they sound good. And, and I also feel that, you know, even in a, on an install, you know, when we commissioned specifically the Clyde system, we had one of the techs from JBL come out, Raul Gonzalez, who's an awesome systems engineer. He's all over the world doing JBL stuff all the time. He, we went through it, we tuned it. He did some of his tricks to kind of get it to where he thought it was cool. We got into it. And then, you know, after mixing a few shows on it, I felt it needed some changes. So like we kind of modified it, but I never really stopped modifying it in a way that, you know, like if an engineer came in who, you know, I could tell that was like a, a good engineer, we'd talk about the system. I'd be like, hey, what did you like about this? What didn't you like about this? Like, what could we improve? And, you know, we had limitations of like, we had a sub cavity under the stage and we only had so much space and we could only space, you know, spe specifically the subs were always kind of a tricky thing, but we had physical limitations. So we could only do so much with those. And so, with that venue, it was always a constant, can I make it like half a percent better? Can I make it like a little bit better? Can I tweak this out? You know, and so it was kind of a work in progress. But I could see that, you know, someone imparting a personal taste on a sound system could backfire because if it's not something that the, you know, the end user or the client is accustomed to or likes or, you know, if someone's mixing on it and they don't really understand what you've done to it, you know, no fault of yours, but just the the general concept of tuning a, a PA or or a room specifically, and and they're just kind of you know not understanding what you did. I could see that going sideways, but I feel like in a venue or an install, like I roll into a lot of places and they're like, oh yeah, this is done. We had it installed. It's fine. Don't touch it. I'm like, but hold on. Like, what is going on here? Why isn't you know you, you ask a few why questions and then you like, hey, can we improve on this? And that's something that. It's a never-ending process. I mean, even still in the studios, I'm messing with... I I got new speaker stands last week for this studio so I could move the subs that we're trying out underneath the speakers so they're in phase with everything. And it, like, totally changed the dynamic of this room. So, like, I'm constantly tweaking stuff. Even in the studio capacity, I'll pull out Smart, do some measurements, I'll move some mics or some, some speakers around. And so, you know, I always feel that there's an opportunity to improve, even on an install, even on something that someone says is amazing. Like with so many people having so many good ideas and so much technology to improve stuff, I mean, I don't think any any one person can get everything completely perfect. And with the subjectiveness of it, it's like if you got someone that comes in, they're like, well, I need more, I need more sub. I'm mixing a DJ gig and this just doesn't have enough sub. We need to bring in more subs. I'm like, that's crazy. There's tons of sub <laughs> for that, for that guy. There's not, you know? And so those are the kind of things where it's like you have to adapt, but at the same time, you know, I, I always feel that there's room for improvement, even on something that I think might've been some of some really good work on my end, you know, if someone's like, hey, this is what I'm hearing, I'm like, oh, cool. That gives me a new perspective to listen to it and then possibly, a, a, you know, approach either modifying or adapting what I'm doing to accommodate a fix on that or being like, you're stupid. I don't need to listen to you. But, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Try, let try, me try to hear try this to, through your ears. Yeah. And, and I think that that, you know, mixing by committee a little bit on that, I think kind of helps. I mean, not too many cooks in the kitchen, but like some trusted, some trusted years I always appreciate, even on, you know, mixes or come out to a show. It's like, Hey, what do you think? Did you, you know, like, and actually like, I would like to hear some feedback. Like, you know, it's nice to be able to, to get a, you know, a collaboration on things. So that being said about, about install stuff, I mean, I think there's a lot of 
I think there's a lot of a room for improvement on a lot of different situations, but I mean, I'm sorry that you guys didn't, didn't win with your, uh, your client there, but I, you know, you could have someone that has a completely different approach to understanding or enjoying sound the way that you do. And when they're paying, then they're in charge. So there's, there's those dynamics as well. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm always, I'm always up for, for trying new things or trying to improve on a situation. So. No, this is great. As, as you're talking, I'm realizing that if you are my client, probably a better way to go about it, instead of me saying, Hey, Sean, I'm really special and I'm really smart. And therefore I'm going to knock it out of the park on the first try. Probably a better approach would be to say, Hey, I'd like to form, build a relationship with you so that you know, with this first pass, I'm going to get it to a place where I feel like it's consistent across the space. And then I want to get you in here and, and get you to listen to it. So then I can, you know, make adjustments. And then I, I don't know what the right way to say it is, but I'd love to have a relationship where I can help you improve this over the next X days or X weeks. And I'll come, you know, maybe we have a relationship where I'm going to come back in after you've had a few shows and, and he- take your notes and make changes. That's probably a better way to approach it than try to pretend like, uh, I know what is the best for everyone in the world. Yeah. And I mean, and everyone has a different workflow, especially like house of worship stuff is, is tricky because you have a lot of like volunteer sound people too, that are like trying to like make the best of what they know how to do. So having something that's easy to control and, you know, and without a lot of bells and whistles is always a a better approach in those sort of situations. But yeah, like checking in three months down the line, like popping in and checking a mix. Hey, how's this working for you? Like, what can we do? I mean, I don't know those sort of improvements. I'm always looking for that. And, and even like, you know, Every time I hear something, the more I listen to things and the more I experience things and the more information or knowledge I gain, I think the better equipped I am to sort of, you know, either make suggestions or like question, what did I do last year? And is that the end all be all of what I've done or should I improve on that or should I look for a solution? Not that I'm trying to create work for myself, but just, you know, baby steps on stuff. But yeah, with a client relationship, I mean, and even like I had mentioned before, dealing with artists like I think a lot of success in audio engineering is based on relationships, you know, whether it's with the artist, whether it's with the venue, whether it's with your A2, whether it's, you know, having a team of people or, you know, having a good set of relationships with people, I think it it leads to success. So I think that that shows that as well as like being able to go back and continue working on something and, you know, removing a little bit of the ego that gets in the way of like, hey, I did the best job I possibly could. It's like, well, for you, it might be, but maybe in that case, what the client needed was something else. So Sure. Sean, let's talk about system latency for a second. I've had a couple of people talking to me about this recently. I've seen... Robert Scoville talking about, you know, uh, different things going through the console and console latency a lot recently and at the last Live Sound Summits. Were you looking at system latency when you were thinking about what would go into the Clyde Theater? Is Does system latency influence your decision making when you're setting up the console, specking the sound system, that kind of stuff? I think that the only time that I really get super concerned about is when I start getting into like crazy plug-in world uh, on a digital console and I start pushing the mix so far away from the band that they can hear it. And I think that that's a that's a dangerous situation to get into where you're inducing more latency than you need to to sort of, you know, throw some more bells and whistles on your left-right bus and things like that. As far as like, you know, driving, you know, 
driving a PA, you know, trying to keep things as efficient as possible. You know, everything we were driving to the cloud was AES, and so tried to kind of keep that as tight as we could. There wasn't a lot of latency induced uh, besides the processing I would do. And I got into that deep on like when I was mixing on a venue and I had a ton of plugins and stuff like that, I was like, you know, there was workarounds to try and get delay compensation to work in that. But I feel like for the most part with a lot of the, the networked audio systems, I mean, we're, we're down like, you know, we're, Audio is moving pretty quick in the digital realm these days, so I'm not as concerned as, as I would be if I was just piling up plugins on the console and, and creating creating my own problem at front of house. I think that's where it, it becomes an issue for me and 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 becomes an issue for me when I start affecting other people's performances when I'm like doing things that are like, why is this like I can't hear? And I, we actually <laughs> talked about it the other day where we're mixing in one of the Sweetwater theaters here. There's a an old an older venue with a bunch of processing because because it split out for like broadcast and split out for like hearing assist and all these different things. But then we also mix wedges off that for people on stage. And it's like, I can't play on it. Like, it's so weird. I'm like, well, we have to turn all the stuff off in order for you to get sound. that's like effectively quick uh, enough for you to, to perform properly. Sure. And so someone brought it up the other day and I was like, yeah, well that, you know, uh, I'm not, you know, not always in all the rooms doing things like that, but I, I'm aware of that. Like if you're mixing monitors from a console that's got a ton of plugins on it, someone's going to be like, this is so strange. So, <laughs> you know, when you're, when you're adding, you know, hundreds, you know, hundred milliseconds of latency in, in processing and stuff, it's not, not fun for anyone to, to deal with that. So, but yeah, other than that, I mean, there wasn't much of a concern. I mean, most of the system at the Clyde was previously specced before I got brought in. So, you know, through Harmon with the JBL and Crown uh, stuff that was brought in. Uh, Sweetwater's been a, JBL's been a big part of Sweetwater for many, many years. And so this was like the logical choice for us to get uh, that rig into that room. And so that was my first time really working with the A12s and, and all, all the stuff. It was impressive. I mean, I had mixed on a lot of Vertac rigs and spent a lot of time working on them to make them sound how I was hoping they would sound and uh, hearing the A12 out of the box it was a pleasant surprise oh, cool. and, and from there it was you know it was a really enjoyable experience there was uh, you know a little bit of uh, learning you know the BSS world and stuff like that and some of the processing that uh, I hadn't been so familiar with I'd been pretty much strictly on the lake mm -hmm. processing and all of that sort of stuff but that being said all of those things you know, latency wasn't ever really an issue for us. It was just if I was causing problems by trying to do too many fancy things on a console. That's, <laughs> okay. That's, well, that's really actually where good I got news, into right? You know, it's like, it's fixable. You haven't put on all the system and realized that you're you're stuck now. Yeah, and that's, yeah, and that, that you know, I... There's a few things, and, and I always know that, that there's variables that you can't control in every situation, and I have to, you know, be accepting of those things. Otherwise, I would lose lose my mind <laughs> trying to think of everything that could possibly not be perfect. So, you know, adapting to, to what those are is fine. But, yeah, the latency is my own doing for the most part if it's, uh, if it's ever going on, so... So, Sean, you've mixed at some of the worst places in the world, some of the best places in the world. You've just had a lot of experience and I'm sure made a ton of mistakes on the way that, you know, lear you learned a lot of lessons from. So I, I wondered if maybe you could pick out one of them to share with us, maybe something that was especially painful or was an especially big lesson for you and just kind of walk us through what happened. I think the, probably the most embarrassing like audio mistake I made was uh, uh, we were doing uh, Pink Pop, a large festi festival, festival, I think it was Belgium, maybe five or six years ago, and 
we had a decent slot. There was probably, I don't know, 40,000 people in front of the stage, like, you know, sizable European festival. And we had like a rotating front of house zone. So everybody had like the console on wheels and we'd like get pole position and we'd like roll the consoles into place. And so I built my rig out there and I got forklifted out there and it was like bouncing around and I had lots of outboard gear and a whole bunch of different things. And so I got it all together, wired it all up, strapped it like with big truck straps all together. So I had this big rolling island of gear that just went into place. <laughs> and I had a couple friends and a couple people for some other bands come come stand by me while I was mixing. They wanted to hear the band and I was all excited. And it was going, it was getting broadcast. So I was mixing a broadcast feed as well. So everything was like, you know, it was, it was pretty Pressure's like, on. You know, in, in, yeah, pressure's <laughs> on for that. And so I line checked everything through headphones. So I got the PFL on everything. All my inputs were good, but I never checked anything through the PA, which is kind of my big mistake, which I probably would never do again. So they start a song, guitar intro goes on for a while, and the drums kick in, and I got no drums. Oh, shit. No drums whatsoever. I'm so like you're seeing a tiny like, person in the distance hitting things, but you're not. Just playing drums, and it's like silent. I'm like, oh my god, where's the drums? And I'm looking down, and I look over, and I got like outboard compressors on the drums, and they're both like dark. And I didn't even look, like, I didn't even look over there. And so like, I like ripped the strap apart, ripped the cases open, threw all the lids, and like the ICs had just like fallen out of the back oh of the god. units. And I like plugged them both back in. The drums came to life, and I think by the chorus, I had everything together. And that was kind of like one of my uh, one of my more embarrassing, but like also like I should have checked all of this stuff. This is my fault. That's terrifying. And, you know, and everyone was kind of impressed at how fast I moved to try and fix my own problem. But you know, that was you know when you get into a complicated situation and you have a lot of complicated you know extra bells and whistles, make sure that you have them functioning. Yeah. Because, uh, <laughs> That's uh, that's not cool when someone's like, hey, why didn't that work? It's like, well, I had all this stuff, and then it wasn't plugged in, and that's my fault. So I feel like that was probably, like, in the most amount of and, – and I really doubt that anyone really noticed. I mean, it would have broken my rule of, like, seeing someone play something and not hearing it through the PA. So that kind of <laughs> that, that kind of bummed yeah. me out. But, you know, uh, and then, yeah, I don't know. It's That would, I would say, probably be the, the biggest, you know – clumsy thing but uh why did the pfl yeah. work but but not going through the the system work I, well no i didn't check it i didn't open oh, the pa up okay, i just I like it, played it. some okay. music through it i was like okay yeah then my outputs work and you know then i didn't pass signal routing through all of my messy routing and you know things that i was you know doing for fun and should have maybe been a little more straightforward so simplicity okay. probably wins in live sound for that i would say that 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 taught me some lessons in in double checking or just being more simple in my process and that that's uh i think that was a that was something that kind of opened my eyes it's like well you know i think it's more important that everything just works rather than having all of these cool <laughs> things and so better have a show than no show Sean, I have a few questions here that came in from the internet. Bobby B says, best practices for building a writer. So kind of a general statement slash question there. Any tips you want to give Bobby B for building a writer? Put on things that you can use and then make sure you very much highlight what you're not willing to use. I think that that's pretty much the most... The biggest takeaway from that, I mean, I was pretty spoiled in the sense that we traveled with control all the time. So we always had console console and processing and stuff like that with us for a whole tour for the most part. But there was some PAs that I just refused to kind of mix on after a while of like repeated 
repeatedly bad shows and bad coverage and more so, you know, like obviously I could mix a show on it, but in the case of a few of them, it was like, it really gives the audience a bad experience because their coverage is so inconsistent. So that was something that I was really kind of adamant on. If there was a speaker system that I didn't like to use, uh, I won't name names. But Wait, I, no, I, what I is it? Are you not going to tell us which uh, speakers you're not willing to mix on? Well, I, I guess I have to have a show with you, then get your writer, and that's how I find out. Yeah, I, yeah. It, I mean, but it was, you know, and, and I really feel that in the, the development of sound system in the past 10 years is, you know, if anyone has a PA that's like 15 plus years old, it's going to be beat down. So, I mean, anything that that you can do to make sure that you have new functioning speakers and you know that they're like, I'm not doing a show until someone signs off that all the drivers are functioning and everything's, you know, working as it should. Because that, you know, point large format point source PAs and stuff like that where it should be a line array and things like that. Or like if it's a venue that brings in a PA, making sure that you get, get something that fits your needs rather than... And whatever the cheapest option is is always something that I, I think is, is always a fight with a promoter and, and a venue too. So, but other than that, knowing what you need to pull off your show, I mean, I think that there's been a large transition of people being reliant on house consoles to people traveling with, you know, the X32 rack uh, for years and maybe an X32 in front of house. And that seems to be mid-level touring. That is so many places I see so many bands have their own gear. It's all dialed in and ready to rock. So like there's less of a reliance on a venue to provide, you know, consoles and things like that. But that being said, if you're really particular, then, you know, bring what you need. I think that that's kind of the takeaway from relying on other people providing you things. If you need it, you need to bring it with you because, you know, if you get into, you know, touring the world and you need a specific piece of gear, it's going to be tough to find. People are going to blow past that part of your rider when they're, you know, not super concerned about the weird audio gear you need to make your show sure. happen. But, you know, a functioning PA that represents your mix is, I mean, I think a, a paramount piece of, of the puzzle. I think that that outlining what you need to do your job, you know, and figuring out what that is. Like if you're mixing an acoustic act, you know, just, I need a DI and a 58 and, a, you know, and some speakers that function. If you're mix, mixing an orchestra and you need like 60 DPAs, then, you know, you're going to have to, you know, make sure that those people provide what you need. So I think that that is, you know, figuring out what your limitations are of providing your services or, or doing your job. Like what what's the least amount of or what's the least you're able to do your job with? And then what are you comfortable doing your job with? And, you know, making sure. sure that your production manager or whoever is advancing the shows fights for that for you. So, yeah, I think that that, that's, that, that kind of covers that. I mean, I just, I, I just, the, as far as it, it went into to details on that stuff, really the most important thing was just I just didn't want to have a PA that sounded bad for the show. And that was kind of, you know, it depends on the size of venues you're working on, too. I mean, all of that is scalable to some yep. extent. Okay, Gabriel P. says, how is it working with Avril Lavigne? Uh, it, was, it was awesome. I spent about 18 months touring with her. I think I just turned 19. We went to 49 countries in those 18 months. And so, you know, did a six-week tour of just Japan, bounced all over the place, pretty much did every TV show 
that was being broadcast at the time, all of the daytime and nighttime shows and MTV and all that stuff. So it was an amazing experience. I saw a lot of places, met a lot of really great people, made it to a bunch of different venues and and a bunch of different festivals. And so it it was a really, really awesome experience, you know. The guys in the band were really great. She she sort of changed up her band after the tour that we did, but, uh, you know, like the bass player, Charles Monez, he scooped a gig with Bruno Mars just after that and has been working with him since then as his engineer. I think he's got five Grammys now. So cool. uh, there's a few people that kind of went on to, to do some great things, and that was a tour I did with Jimmy Akabuski, who is obviously an industry le- legend and, you know, learned a lot of things and still stay, stay closely in touch with him. So, yeah, it was a great experience. Uh, learned a lot of things. There was an opening act on that tour. Uh, Butch Walker was opening up, who's a pretty successful producer and a solo artist himself. But his engineer, Paul Hager, is also a super talented live sound and studio engineer. And so I learned a lot from Paul, and that was a really cool experience to be around him. And he would go into studios on days off, and I would tag along and stuff like that. So it was an interesting thing. And that that continued on. He was actually the front of house mixer for the Goo Goo Dolls when I worked with them. So, you know, made some long-term relationships with some people on that tour. Got to see a lot of places and learn a lot of things. So it was very cool. cool. Okay, Greg McVeigh says, ask him when he's going to ditch the real job and mix touring acts again. Delivering that with as much sarcasm as possible. Yeah, he yeah. says his work with Counting Crows was just fantastic. Yeah, Greg's a great guy. And uh, yeah, he came out. Actually, I'm trying to think. I think the last time I saw him was in San Diego and I had a sandstorm console incident. That might have been another oh weird God. one. Uh, we were at a, a poolside venue in Vegas and a monsoon rolled oh my in. God. And I went and ran onto the stage to save all of our guitars and left my console uncovered and like it ended up with like a sand drift over it. And so we went to the, I think it was the, maybe it was the Orange County State Fair or somewhere near San Diego, I think. And so anyways, I had a console full of sand and so I was swapping that out and I think that was the last time Greg was out. So I, I, yeah, I mean, I love doing that. I'm really enjoying having employment through... The pandemic, Sweetwater's amazing. I get oh, to do sure. super cool things here. And, you know, stability uh, is something that I've never really experienced before in my professional career. So, you know, uh, the hustle of finding the next gig, finding the next record, finding, you know, whatever is um, is something to be, you know, I, I don't, uh, don't take that for granted. I, I quite appreciate my opportunities here. And the, it's just a, a great company that is endlessly growing and we're doing a lot of cool things. And I get to be involved with a lot of stuff. And that, that you know, I, I have no idea what the future holds for me. But uh, right now, this is, this is super awesome and I'm really happy to be here. Sean, what's in your work bag? Are there one or two unique pieces that you have to have with you on every show or, or something interesting that might be fun to share with our listeners? A bunch of eye locks. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> okay, cool. No, um, no. I mean, yeah. I don't know. Like, like I, I mentioned, the Telefunken microphones are something that I really like to use. I do have like a few of those I travel with. I like them on drums, guitars, vocals, all of this sort of stuff. So, like, if I take like a couple things to a gig, probably, probably that. I mean. Uh, adapters and all that fun stuff. I like to have a good adapter kit. I like to buy cable. Like if I need some more, you know, options of a mixing on an analog console or something, I'll, I'll have like, you know, Y cables to like bolt the snare and some stuff like that. You know, I kind of ditched headphones a long time ago in the live realm. I use in-ears for checking anything when I'm mixing. I think the isolation you get from them is really helpful. So I have a few different sets. Greg uh, was very helpful in uh, getting me sorted out with some Ultimate Ears UERMs back in the day. 
day. And those are really great pieces that I used and trusted to do some of the mixing and listening for the Cannon Crows live stuff. And then I would go back to the tour bus after the show and master the show on my in-ears and a set of headphones to double check them. And so, you know, those kind of things. I travel, usually if I'm traveling somewhere, I have a universal audio interface and some Apollo satellites to have some of their processing to do, you know, remote stuff. Or if I'm working on a project, I can take it with me, you know, a laptop. Usually if I'm going somewhere, I'm like, oh yeah, I need all this stuff. Stuff. And then I like get there and I don't use any of it. And so I drag around a lot of things. I mean, I mean, I toured for years with too much like hard drives and all these adapters and stuff. And I mean, the thing these days is like my laptop now has USB-C and I need, you know, adapters to get anything plugged into it. So it's the adapter farm of that sort of situation. But yeah, there's yeah. uh it's, it's constantly evolving. There's not, you know, I don't have like a set gig bag these days. It's just sort of like what I need to do, whatever I've got going on. If I'm coming to and from work, it's usually uptake my locks home and then I'm bringing them back to work and that's about all that I move back and forth which is nice you know uh, Sean what's one book that has been really helpful for you um, well I don't know I, I appreciate a lot of different books I've been reading more lately one of the books that I've found had the most amount of like in-depth information about audio engineering is a book called Recording the Beatles that I got probably 10 or 12 years ago. An acquaintance of mine, this guy Brian Kehu, who works with The Who as their keyboard tech, but also as a studio engineer remixing like B-sides and outtakes. He goes through the archives and different record labels and like does these weird releases, but put together this like 20-year project of like researching every single recording the Beatles ever did and what gear they used and how they bounced the tape down and all the gear from Abbey Road. And it's like this Bible. It comes in like the sleeve of like an old tape reel. Cool. And so like, that's like one of my prized possessions and it's like an amazing book. And I'm like, if anybody's ever like geeking out about something, it's like, here, check this book out. And it's like, supposedly they're worth a ton of money because they stopped printing them and they were kind of pricey when they came out. But that's one of the, the, the coolest books I've ever seen. And I love that. Reading Chairman of the Board, which is a Bill Schnee autobiography, really famous producer and engineer. I don't know. I try and, you know, dig into some audio related books and some, you know, some self-help and leadership books and stuff like that if I'm trying to, you know, get motivated to do something but uh, other than that it's just sort of you know if i see something that comes out or if i hear someone talk sort of you know chase down what they're talking about and then read about it usually so okay cool sean do you listen to podcasts i do okay so i want to know like what are the one or two that you have to listen to every time a new one comes out in the audio field a working class audio podcast that interviews a lot of mostly studio engineers but uh, super interesting because it sort of removes a little bit of the tech technical side of things and then talks about how people have navigated their career path and more of like a, how did you get through this financial situation? You know, how do you deal with having a job and doing this? And, and, and it really is a really interesting perspective on it. I mean, obviously, I love gear and I love geeking out about stuff, but it's also nice to hear how other people survive in this industry, how they work in this industry and how they get work. So I usually am pretty religious of watching that one. And then uh, Russell Brand's got a really interesting podcast called Under the Skin. And I like mm-hmm. usually that that's a weekly thing for me. I usually get into that. There's man, it's all over the map who he interviews on that. And it's the topics are could be anything. So it's super interesting. So I really that one's uh one that I listen to every week as well. So maybe there's something you could help me with. Yeah, when I listen to working class audio, one thing that sticks out to me or struck me compared to my own podcast and compared to everyone else's podcast is how he manages to have really honest discussions about money. And as soon as I heard that the very first time, I was like, oh, 
I want to do that in my podcast. Never had the balls to do it. I don't know if I just can't figure out the right language or I just come from a background where I have a tough time talking about that, but I don't mind asking you like, how did you get that job or how did that thing work out for you in your life? But to say like, can you tell me about sort of the economics of being Shandili, I've never really figured out how to like ask that well. So do you have any ideas? Like how could I ask live sound engineers, how would you appreciate uh, starting a conversation saying like, how do you put together your financial life so that you can sort of like survive and, and have the things that you want? Yeah. How, how do you have somewhere to live and eat uh, yeah. <laughs> on a monthly basis? <laughs> where, you know? I mean, I want to say like, where do you get money? But like, this is really interesting for people, right? Because we all put our careers together in different ways. And that's actually a really interesting topic. Some people have like other jobs where they are like landlords or uh, they're selling stuff on the side or whatever. And that's all really interesting. So it's like how much of your life is getting checks from, you know, doing a, an audio gig or something else. Yeah, and man, uh, to engage with that subject, you kind of have to have an idea of, of what you're getting into. I feel like on that podcast, he does a good job of sort of dancing around and also engaging. So like, it's not like, well, how much money did you make on this? But it's uh -huh. like, you know, were you successful in this and how did it come together? And I mean, like, I have never really worked for a company. I've been my own company. I've been an independent contractor. I've always done stuff where I've, I've had to, you know, negotiate and ask people for money, chase them down, invoice and all that stuff. And so this is my first time having a job where I get a paycheck every two weeks. And <laughs> trust me, it's awesome. But like that being said, the amount of full-time positions in the audio engineering field that are, you know, consistent salaried positions with health benefits and all that stuff are few and far between. So, I mean, it's a touchy subject because I think some people are really, you know, they got to grind and grind and grind to make ends meet. Some people have some success. And I mean, I think that's where the relationship aspect of all of this stuff comes into play is like, who do you know that can get you your next gig? You know, how does that sort of play into all of that? And I mean, Without actually asking about money, I think those are the kind of things. It's like, how do you get your next gig? How do you make sure you get paid? You know, and those sort of things. And I, I, I don't know. Like to me, I've, I've always kind of been bad with that too. I'm not. I'm not a great businessman, and I'm not, you know, super inclined in that situation. So, for me, I like the fact that I have like a safety net of a, a company that's supporting me and behind me and paying me and that's a really amazing thing. Whereas, you know, when you're an independent audio engineer and you're like, okay, cool. So I was in the studio today. I made like 300 bucks and then I went and mixed at a bar and I made a hundred bucks and some of it's cash and some of it goes to my business and like all those sort of things like the accounting for being an audio engineer is a mess. You know, it's tricky. You know, you try and buy gear, you try and write stuff off, you sell something, you know, all these sort of things that kind of come together to, to allow you to be to live and do what you like, I think is a really, it's a, it's a fine balance, but yeah, I don't know how to, um, how to breach that subject in, in, in general capacities. I mean, some people are super transparent about it. Some people don't like talking about it, but you know, I think it, I think it's a struggle. And I think that that's something too, that I see it's difficult for me to like, I speak at a couple of local colleges and stuff where people are in, in audio engineering programs. And it's like, if you're not already hustling, like you got to start hustling or this is not going to be, a, this is not going to work. You know, you're not going to get work in this industry. And I think that that's something that, you know, it's not an easy field to get into. There's a lot of competition. There's a lot of, a lot of people, you know, that want one in on this and doing, you know, doing what I do. You know, I think that 
it's amazing. I love my job. You know, there's nothing I would, I can't think of anything else I'd rather be doing than what I'm doing right now. So, you know, that being said, I'll, I'll fight for my gig. I'll, I'll fight for, for what I need to, but you know, people, people want to do this and people are competitive with it. So I think a big part of it is the, the journey and maybe the identification with you've gone through, you know, the same struggle that I have. And so maybe I could approach it by asking people about their business journey or their financial journey, because I know that for me, I spent most of my life kind of going through cycles of going broke and just sort of living from paycheck to paycheck. And it was only in the last few years that I started getting enough money coming in that, you know, I'm not just sort of constantly worried about money. And so maybe I could approach it that way and sort of ask people like, you know, tell me about your financial journey because there's, this is not a job where you can survive without understanding the business side of it and where you can survive without understanding kind of the economics of touring and the economics of shows. You kind of have to have a grasp of that. And I think there are potentially other jobs where you may go through your entire career and job and never really understand how the company makes money. You just understand that you do your job and you get a paycheck, but it doesn't really work that way for us. So... You're giving me some good ideas. I think that that would be a thing to ask. And and maybe we're already going pretty long in this interview, but if you just had like a short answer, could you tell me about maybe a time in your life when you started out and there was probably a period where you were just kind of living from paycheck to paycheck and like, will I have enough money to buy food and pay the rent? Was there a transition where just you had enough work coming in or you had enough money saved where you, you you weren't so that wasn't the dominating fear of your mind of, of having enough money. I'm still waiting for that to happen. <laughs> um, no. um, All no. right, this is where we introduce the GoFundMe for Sean. No, Dealey. no, 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 no. I'm, 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 I'm good. But that being said, um, you know, th- there was always a motivating factor for for finding work. You know, my touring career, I don't think I ever regressed in my pay scale. So every tour that I moved to, I was making I was making more money. So I was like growing my value and people were recognizing that. So at least my touring world was consistently growing. Now in the recording side of things, I was always a, a, an uphill battle of figuring out how much money people had and what I could get them to pay me to work for them. And that was always, a, you know, that was always tougher to negotiate. At least with a tour, I could be like, hey, I'm going to work for you guys. What is a pay? We can negotiate a price. And then like I'm locked in with that. And, you know, depending on what happens, there's, you know, I got pay raises and stuff like that, depending on what was going on. So that was that was always cool. But like my driving factor is that it was always like, okay, cool. Well, I need to pay rent at the studio. I need to pay rent at home. I need to eat. What am I going to do? And I got to find work. And that was kind of the thing that drove me. It's like, well, and I got to buy gear. So like, (laughs) yep. (laughs) So I was like, okay, well, I bought bought more gear than I should have. And I need to eat and I still need to pay rent. So what am I going to do? And like those sort of things just always pushed me to kind of keep pushing and always trying to find the next thing and be like, okay, okay, well then selling gear is what we're going to do this month and move a few pieces of, you know, few pieces of gear that I don't use or that I did actually didn't need. And, you know, that's, that's something else I learned later on in life that <laughs> you don't need to own every piece of gear on earth. So, um, but like, those are the kind of business decisions that I should have paid attention to early on when I was like trying to build a studio and buy a bunch of gear and like own more stuff than I needed to, where I could have saved money and, and established my future rather than putting it all into, you know, things that really didn't get me any more business, which is something that I learned later on in life that, you know, it wasn't as much about the gear you had, but more of the attitude you brought to the table. But, you know, that was always my driving. My thing that drove me was that I needed 
to continue to live and I needed to continue to find work. And so I, you know, networked, I made friends, I, I went to shows, found bands to record and all of that stuff sort of, you know, put me in the situation that I am in today. But, you know, through a connection, I got this job at Sweetwater that I met through being on the road and, you know, all these sort of things. I mean, I have a career trajectory that I think I can link to three people for 15 years of work. So, oh wow, you know, it's uh, the I met the people from the Avril tour when I was doing my first tour. That tour manager, tour managed the Goo Goo Dolls, and the production manager on the Avril tour did the Counting Crows. And so, like, I just kind of those people got me my work that lasted 15 years. And so, those kind of connections where you establish something and you can do a job and keep keep in touch with them, you know, there's that that that's pretty invaluable to have a few connections that trust you and and, and are willing to put their name on the line for you. So, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, I mean, that kind of is not very short, but that's kind of where where I'm at. So. <laughs> uh, Sean, where's the best place for people to follow your work? Uh, sweetwaterstudios.com, uh, under the, I think it's the team tab you can check in with me there. My email's there. And then also on, I'm the only social platform I'm active on is on Instagram at Sean Dealey and, uh, trying and, lots of photos of beer. Yeah. Uh, just, uh, well, it, <laughs> y- y- yesterday it was, uh, ADATS. I was transferring ADATS and I was hooking okay. them up through Dante and it wow, was, uh, ADATS. Yeah, yeah. It was a kind of a interesting throwback, but I en- engaged with new technology and old technology and it was actually quite simple. And so that was kind of fun, but yeah, mostly, you know, some geeky pictures of, of some studio stuff and people that we're working with here. And so, but yeah, no, it's, uh, it's good. So I like to try and share when it's something cool, cool going on. All right. Well, Sean Dealey, thank you so much for joining me on Sound Design Live. Appreciate it. Thank you for your time. Sound Design. Sound Design Live is supported by Ellis, Learn Stage Lighting, Joel, Ross, Bob, Senqui, Roadie Free Radio, Scott, John, Voyager Sound, Dave, Kuba, DC Sound Up, Carl Hines, Nicholas, Andrew, Yusuf, Chris, Terry, EJC Audio, Stuart, Ozon, and Sven. You can start supporting Sound Design Live today for as little as $5 a month over at patreon.com slash sounddesignlive. This episode features music from an artist named Glitch, you can find more at soundcloud.com slash glitch. <laughs>